Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the uh, end of the first day, or getting to the evening. And <clears throat> sometimes when you talk to people in interviews, they can say, um, uh, yesterday so-and-so happened, and like, wait a second, that was this morning. So I'm not sure how many of you have had that feeling already. Um, the first day of mindfulness can feel uh, incredibly long. So um, welcome to this long day. <clears throat> it's a day of great um, transition, a day of going from our normal, everyday, kind of speedy lives. And then we sort of step right into this field of quiet and slowing down and dropping right into the flow of our uh, of our experience um, without too much distraction. So uh, each night at this time, um, tonight and tomorrow night, we're going to give something called a Dharma talk, and hopefully this will lend some clarity and inspiration for the work you're doing. I'd like to begin with um, a very uh, inspirational quote by a great um, Chinese teacher from a long time ago, the third Chinese patriarch. And so um, <clears throat> this for him was distilling the practice that he was trying to teach and the lineage that he had been given. So this is the translation. The great, the great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Separate by the smallest amount, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you don't like is the disease of the mind. When the fundamental nature of things is not recognized, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect, as vast space is perfect, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our grasping and rejecting and rejecting that we do not know the true nature of things. Live neither in entanglements of outer things nor in the ideas or feelings of emptiness. Be serene and at one with things, and erroneous views will disappear by themselves. When you try to stop activity to achieve quiet, your very effort fills you with activity. As long as you remain attached to one extreme or another, you will never know oneness. Those who do not live in a single way cannot be free either in activity or quiet. And then the, the piece he wrote uh, goes on from there. <clears throat> I'd like to describe my, my first encounter with this um, when I was a teenager. I went to a wilderness camp up in northern Ontario and I was raised um, sort of middle-class New England family. Um, so I had some comfort and privilege. Um, and then every summer I would go up and uh, canoe down the rivers and lakes of northern Ontario. 
it was a very different lifestyle. And so right away, you're having to deal with uh, discomfort compared to the life of you know, middle-class America. Sleeping on the ground, you're uh, cooking your food, so you have to do a lot of work to make it, um, splitting the wood and starting the fire. Uh, there are insects you have to deal with, like mosquitoes and flies, and you have to deal with the rain and uh, very intense sun sometimes where it gets very hot. And you're working all day from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, trying to uh, canoe down these rivers and lakes, sometimes into great headwinds, and um, carrying your canoes and backpacks and whatever great distances. <clears throat> so it was actually kind of a hard lifestyle. Um, and that first week was difficult, just like the first day of a retreat is difficult. That first day was full of regret. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I remember the last week and how great that was, but I keep forgetting how much the first week is difficult. And we very rarely come to retreat for the first day. Just so you know, <laughs> uh, there is a turning point. <clears throat> um, you've been through one of the hardest points. Mark said the hardest point was just getting here. And maybe the second hardest point is this realignment with your body, this reacquainting uh, yourself with what it's like to have a body and be in it, and reacquainting yourself with your heart and all the range of emotions, and reacquainting yourself with your mind and how busy it is. But something would happen at this camp, and over the once I got past the first week, <clears throat> a type of um, well-being would come to me that wasn't based on comfort. There was a type of uh, of hardiness and robustness of being alive, and sort of the all the concerns of my life back home would begin to evaporate, and my life became very immediate up there in the woods. And they're surrounded by nature. You're surrounded by this uh, sort of harmonious landscape where over millions of years the plants and animals and lakes and landscapes have grown into this balance. And so you begin to uh, associate with that. And then <clears throat> I would look at the people who were leading these trips and some of them had been doing it for 20 years or 30 years and they had a joy in them that was very persistent and from day one, they had a smile about them. They had a way of being. Even if it rained, it didn't disrupt their joy. Even on the hard days, they would sort of they would be smiling the same. I was like, where are these guys drawing that from? So I got very curious about that. And over the course of the weeks of being out there, of spending that much time in nature, and also working hard and challenging myself, I began to feel this joy growing this sort of happiness that would be there. It wouldn't be there at the beginning. So it wouldn't be there at the first week I got there. And I noticed that you know, I preferred the sun to the rain. I preferred sleeping on moss to sleeping on hard ground. I, prefer, I preferred different air temperatures and I had the ones that were just perfect. I preferred different company. Um, all these preferences that I came with would cause uh, that first week to be diff very difficult. You know, I, would, I would be exposed to experiences that wouldn't be comfortable, and therefore I would become unhappy because of that, you know, bummed out. But over the course of time of being there, I could uh, climatize to that. And then I began uh, leading these trips, and I could see the same thing. These young kids would come, and this first week they'd be shaken a little bit. But I had faith that if they stayed with that transition period, something would grow, and it always did. It was phenomenal, really phenomenal to see anybody come be shaken by that first week of living up in the woods. 
and then watch something dawn in them and then becoming so incredibly strong and resilient no matter what the circumstances were. Because we were all drawing our sense of well-being not from comfort, not from our preferences and trying to get things just right. We actually expanded our capacity to be present with a greater range of experiences. And that expansion of capacity brings in an unshakable well-being. When your sense of well-being isn't determined on certain experiences, then it becomes unconditional, unconditional well-being. No matter what the conditions are, you have a, uh, a sense of well-being. And so it was fun to even see you know, 10-year-olds come and go through this and see 18-year-olds come and see myself go through this time and time again. And <clears throat> my first trying to understand, uh, 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 attempt to understand this, the only thing that kind of mirrored that would be uh, Taoist poetry. So I didn't grow up with much of a religious or spiritual um, upbringing. But as I was trying to hunt for what was going on up at, uh, at this camp up in nature, um, Taoist poetry seemed to capture it because there's a sense of humility combining with this great sense of confidence. And um, it's reflected in that poetry, it's quite beautiful. You might have heard it in some of the writing. But there'd be moments, there'd be moments of such incredible contentment and I didn't know where it was coming from. And I noticed I'd be brushing my teeth, sun would be going down, end of a hard day, and the water would get very calm and there would be this dusk twilight. And then the, the birds would be kind of flying with the last visible light trying to get ready for the night. And so these, uh, usually these ducks would fly by and the water would be flat and you could hear every wing beat. It was so incredibly um, intimate. And my mind would be kind of relaxed and open and uncluttered. And I could actually hardly bear it. It was so beautiful. Um, there'd be something about that moment that would, that would shake me a little bit. It's just so incredibly perfect. And, and then living in nature, we often don't criticize nature. We don't have strong preferences about what nature should look like. Most of the time we go into nature, it's a thumbs up, right? <laughs> You go to the desert, it's like, yeah, okay, this is desert life. Yeah, you go to the jungle and the rainforest, it's like, wow, this is also really amazing. We don't have strong preferences about what nature should look like so much. We kind of, you can stand in awe of just about any example of it. So that's sort of unconditional awe because we give nature that great room to be itself. And that's some of what we're doing here. We're giving ourselves greater and greater room to be ourselves, unadjusted, unmodified. That's some of the relaxation that's happening. You're sitting here, you're walking, and you're relaxing these standards. You're relaxing the forces that try to make you other than you are. Social pressures, expectations, habits that keep you in the life you have, but it's like a tight-fitting shoe, and you keep trying to like force yourself into the shoe rather than <laughs> get a different pair. And so here on the retreat, there's some form, there's the sitting, the walking, there's a schedule. But the invitation is to come into greater and greater relaxation into how you are in that moment, uncontrived. And so that's a tricky part about meditation is that there's some effort required to hold yourself in the form, but there's, if you're using too much effort if you're trying to make something particular happen. We wanna come into uncontrived being uncontrived flow. And so that takes uh, a balance. That takes a balance of 
being willing to um, guide your mind into skillful places like being with the breath as opposed to just lost in thought. But then as we come down into more and more presence with things as we are, then there's a relaxation and opening. You relax and open about what you feel in your body and you expand the range of what you can be intimate with. You expand the range of uh, pains that arise, tensions in the back, um, different places where the body might be sore. Maybe sometimes the room is too hot, maybe sometimes it's too cool. Rather than like rushing to do something about it to get you back into a narrow range of comfort, you expand your range that you can be comfortable in. And then if you make adjustments, it's not about um, not being in a place of well-being. You can actually keep yourself comfortable, but it's not so driven, not so compulsive to get yourself back into the narrow range where you like living. Your range is greatly expanded. So that's some of the work we're doing here is uh, settling into things as they are, learning how to do that skillfully. And then this can also expand. This is a sort of um, us here now being with the body, being with memory and thought, being with different emotions. But as we begin to relax, we begin to deepen our relationship to ourselves. And again, you have to relax your preferences about what you want to find as you get to know yourself. You have to be willing to get an honest inventory of what you find. Honest inventory about where the mind goes, honest inventory about the emotions that arise. So to do that, we start with the basis of the body. That's a very helpful place. If you can come to the body, then some of the swirl that gets us so uh, um, perplexed and uh, caught up in things, that can begin to calm down some. It can begin to calm just a little bit. And you can see things clearly. You can see the thoughts you're having. You can see the emotions that are happening. Feel deeply into your body with less reactivity. And then this unfolding process begins because we're not controlling experience so much. Uh, our body can begin to work itself out. Places where we've been contracted can begin to open. Emotions that we've never been able to feel before can arise, play through us, and then dissipate as they're meant to do, as opposed to being threatening. We have a greater uh, capacity for that. This is the great way. The great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. So it's relaxing the preferences of what you want to ha see happen and opening up to what is happening. And that's the great challenge. How to do that skillfully. That's where the, the container comes in, the practices come in to build that capacity, like going to a gym and building your muscles to that. We're building our capacity to be with a greater and greater range of experience. I just led a trip to Burma, where uh, I spent a year as a monk, uh, maybe 13 years ago. I was in two different monasteries. And I fell very deeply in love with that country. And now I love to bring people who uh, have got the bug of practice. They like it. There's something about this um, path that's meaningful to them. And bringing people like that to Burma is incredible because you can see a whole culture that's been organized around these principles, courageously organized around these principles. There's a town in Burma named Bagan, where in the 11th century, the king was so taken by what he heard a monk talking about when he was talking about practices like this, that he converted with his whole heart. And when the king converted, all the people took note and they converted. 
And it, it, it uh, began this incredible building of all these temples and monuments and monasteries for people to practice. And um, it's just, it's almost unprecedented to see that conversion happen. And within 200 years, this whole valley was covered in monasteries and temples of practice and the whole um, community uh, following this king um, joyously uh, took on these views and practices. So it can be like that. It can be that, um, that awesome when you really drop into it. Rather than it being an interesting idea, when you actually drop in and do the work, you can feel these transformations happening. And on this trip, this last trip I uh, went to, um, I met a young woman who was teaching in a school that I've kind of fallen in love with. I said, well, and she said, you know, I, I practice a little meditation. I was like, okay. I mean, for an American, that means a little bit of meditation. And she said, um, yeah, I was a nun for a year in a monastery. And I was like, oh, what, what, you're pretty young. What, what inspired you to do that? And she said, oh, well, my father died quite suddenly of malaria. And um, my family was very grief-stricken. And I didn't quite know what to do. Uh, I had a lot of grief. I didn't quite know what to do. So I talked to the abbot of this monastery. And he said, come practice. And so she ordained as a nun. And she did just what you're doing here sitting meditation, standing meditation, walking meditation, eating meditation. And she did it until she had felt through the grief of her father passing. And she said it took about a year. But when she came through, she had fully come back into terms of love of her father and an ability to hold that he had passed. So when we get to no preferences, it's not that we stop caring about the world but we know how to actually be in alignment with it. You know, many of us struggle about holding some of the things that are going on in the world. And in that struggle, it's hard to actually uh, not get exhausted with the fact that we don't want certain things to be happening. All the, uh, all the calamity that's happening in Japan, none of us want that. And so it causes a lot of grief. And then how do we hold that over time that our hearts can open and then we can come to terms with what's happening there. Because that's, you know, it, there was that tsunami uh, years ago and there have been other earthquakes and there will be other earthquakes. So we have to grow in our capacity. This is what it's mean to be on the planet. It means that we're going to be challenged. And if you have preferences that don't allow for those challenges to come, you're going to be really shaken and in grief when they do come. So we're learning to grow our capacity to be with uh, great challenges and all the small ones that come and what's it like to show up for things as they are. So this is where the training of mindfulness comes in. So we teach mindfulness and insight. Mindfulness is the ability to be present with things as they are. So that's a lot of the work we're doing here, is just settling in, and that's what this moment is. I'm breathing in, there's a little thought about my dad and his new dog, and there's a little fatigue happening over here. That's what that moment is. And then a moment later, I'm breathing out, the memory has shifted, my mood has shifted, sounds in the room have shifted. Next breath, I breathe in, everything has shifted a little bit. So things are constantly changing, right? 
So we come in, and when the first place we try to really learn to be with is being in the physical body. You'll notice that um, emotions can be very strong when they roll in, and they can kind of take our perspective with them. If anger takes over, it takes our perspective with it. Thoughts come in and they're very confusing. Past, present, future, they're all over the place. So coming in and actually beginning to feel inside your body and feel, okay, there's warmth over here and there's coolness here. Although it's changing, it doesn't change as fast as thoughts do. It's not as overwhelming as sometimes emotions are. So it's the first place to really begin to develop that capacity to be present with things as they are coming into the body, letting our attention go all the way down through it, all the way down through your legs, through your back, into your shoulders, down through your arms, all through your neck. Actually learning to be at home in having a physical body. And you know, we're all basically somewhat tethered to our body, but this deepens our intimacy, feeling the actual sensations with that loyalty. Mark talked about falling in love with the breath. And that was basically what some of the monks told me in Burma. It's like, fall in love with the breath. It's like, yeah, well, the body, the breath. And it's kind of like, after you felt a couple of them, they're not that different, so how do you stay in love with it? And it's like, well, fall in love with the, with the process of being bored with the breath, and then you'll see the boredom pass, and the breath will be this whole new level of excitement, whole new level of beauty that you can feel that much more what's going on. So it takes some persistence to stay with breath after breath after breath. And going through the challenges that come up, a little boredom, mind wanders, different irritations come through, cravings come through, all that's happening, and then staying with the breath anyhow, and then those things pass, and you're back into the breath, and it becomes quite beautiful. One whole breath in and breath out can be very fulfilling. And that's sort of what the free mind tastes like. It can be very fulfilled with a simple act of breathing. That mind uh, doesn't need a new car. That mind doesn't need a whole makeover of its entire life because you found that actually breathing is really fulfilling. This body <clears throat> um, is so amazing, and yet we take it for granted it's kind of fun to see uh, uh, newborns and children as they develop and as they keep discovering more capacity, things that we take for granted, they don't. And so it's exciting the first time they can actually reach and grab something and hold it. That for them is, is just jaw-dropping. But we've, we've gotten so accustomed to that, we're a little bored and we want to go move on. But that's an, that's an incredible miracle. You know, this body is so fantastic. And we keep forgetting how fantastic it is. There's a, um, there's a story <clears throat> of these um, great accomplished yogis traveling together, and they come to a river. And the river is a little challenging because it's got slippery rocks. <clears throat> and so they're all going to show, you know, after many years of practice, they're all going to perform a miracle to get across the river. And one yogi slaps his hands, and as soon as they meet, there's a pop. His body disappears and it reappears on the other shore. I'm like, okay, nicely done, nicely done. <laughs> Takes a little practice to get there. So you've mastered that. The other rogi gets really, really still and his physical body begins to glow and he turns into a body just made of light. And he floats across the river because light doesn't have any weight. 
floats across, gets on the other side, settles in, brings back the earthy part of the body, and he's there again. It's like, oh, well, okay, well done. <laughs> See, you've practiced a little bit too. And then <clears throat> the third yogi is like, okay, I want to show that, you know, here's my chance to perform a miracle. And he rolls up his pants and he walks across. And that's the miracle we live in all the time. We've already accomplished that miracle. And it's just astounding. It just astounds me how, um, how discontent people can be with the life they have when they're given one of these. What it's made of and how it actually runs and operates pretty much on its own. Again, as Mark said, not quoting Jack, we put some dead plants and animals in this end, drink a little water, and then this thing goes and keeps going and going. If you had to do the work of one cell yourself, make all the decisions that that one cell is making every day, you couldn't get to your email. <laughs> but it's willing to churn along just fine and in, be in harmony with a trillion other cells doing the same thing without you even having to stress about it. The very, um, the very atoms in your body were forged when stars exploded, many of them. The calcium in your teeth, they're so strong because they were forged as a star exploded. That exploding forces uh, is what created the calcium in your teeth. But then we can have a day where it's like, yeah, I'm all bored. <laughs> I want something else to be happening. I'm sitting here in meditation and my mind's wandering. It's like, I wish I'd done something else. It's like you're just drenched in an unfathomable miracle of having a body. And we've grown so used to it that we're looking elsewhere for the easier fix, something to entertain us. So I recommend that you live in the miracle of that third yogi, that you live in this body and live in the delight of it, and not get divorced from that. If you don't know how beautiful this thing is, get to know it, and that's one thing that can be grown out of this retreat, is really feeling it. How many of you have felt that already in the walking meditation, this thing that you've done since you were young, yet when you stop to actually feel it, you can feel all those micro-movements that go on. Your body knows how to be in balance, it knows how to step, your mind knows how to maneuver around things, knows how to turn around and come back. You know, you're discovering that. This is what it's like to consciously walk as opposed to unconsciously walk. And that's a great gift. That's a great gift. The eating, you know, you can do that unconsciously or you do it consciously and there's so much flavor there. That's some of the reward of waking up into this phenomenal body you have. And that's where the, sort of the, uh, the pleasure comes from when you stop in, and it's, and it's pleasantly rewarding to feel your body walk, feel yourself breathe and fall in love with your breath, to be eating and taste the crunchiness of the salad and the warmth of the soup and the sweetness of this and the crunchiness of that. This is, all those different uh, experiences going by. And if none of them are unpleasant, that's actually uh, very easy to show up for. You know, your mind wanders, but you bring it back. It's rewarding to bring it back. But to walk the great way is to live beyond the force of strong preferences, attachment to preferences. And so part of the maturity is how do you open up to unpleasant experiences as well? 
you know, to be in this miracle of the body, one of the reasons that we're not in the miracle of the body is that we find unpleasant experiences there. And you can't choose to feel only the pleasant ones. So one of the reasons that we don't actually feel into our body is that we've thrown away the unpleasant ones, but with that goes an ability to feel the pleasant ones as well. To recover the pleasant ones, you have to also recover the unpleasant ones. With a little bit of training, the unpleasant ones can be held in a way that they're not so disturbing. They're just unpleasant. So <clears throat> I had a back injury a little while ago, and I can feel it now, and it's not pleasant. But it doesn't cause me a lot of um, dissatisfaction. It's just that there's tightness there. It's a little sore. And okay, that's what it is to have a body there where there's aches and pains. I can, I can deal with that. Work out the ones that I can, and then uh, love the ones I can. And that's, uh, it doesn't cause me much agitation. But because I'm willing to be in the body and feel the pain and the pleasure and open up to that, I get to live in this miracle with a, a, a very deep sense of awe, very deep sense of gratification. And because I don't lose my body, I don't wake up one morning, don't know where I put it, right? <laughs> I wake up into this body. And you all do that too. You wake up into your bodies and you get to be in them all day long. So it could be a secret source of joy all day long, no matter what's happening. At least you got one of these. And that's, that's really profound. So mindfulness <clears throat> is coming and letting your attention open up to things as they are right in that moment. All the little building blocks of that moment that make up what's going on. So there's body sensations, there's sounds, there's sights, tastes, and aromas. Those are the five senses. Certain emotions are playing through. Anger, peace, joy, love, nostalgia. All these different emotions can be playing through. Mental states can come through. Clarity, ease, excitement, dullness. All that is playing through too. And so this is what makes up a moment. And then everything shifts a little bit. The next moment, things are a little different. Next moment, things are a little different. And mindfulness is an ability to stay with that change and that flow. And then different things throw us out because we don't know how to be present with that. Anger comes or pain comes, a certain thought comes, and we don't know how to hold it as a passing experience. And so we get hooked on it. And then it takes a while and we unhook ourselves and we're back into feeling. But over time, the capacity grows to be present with more and more experiences and see them just for what they are. Thought is interesting because thought is just an experience, just like the birds sing and you can feel your heart throbbing. Thoughts are just part of what's going on. Your body will always have sensations going on in it, warmth and weight, movement of the breath, the mind will always be generating concepts and thoughts. It's just what it does. You know, a functioning mind knows how to think. So it's not a problem, but we tend to get lost there very easily. We tend not to get lost in warmth as much. There's not a lot of drama in the body. I mean, the body can get dramatic, but the average sensations of the body feel kind of enjoyably benign. But many thoughts 
will grab our attention and take us on a ride. And then we're gone for a long time. That's one of the great insights that you have. In the first day of practice is you get to see those patterns playing out. How many thoughts do you have in a day? And how much they take your attention and take it on these long rides only to be let go of. And then where, where really did you go? How important was that thought train to go on that thought train? And you can see that not so many of them are actually that crucial, but we live very addicted to them and going on their rides. So that's one of the big habits to let go of is stepping on every thought that goes through and going on its ride compulsively, having more choice. Like being at a Macy's Day Parade and <laughs> seeing all these floats go by and enjoying them, but not having to get on everyone and you know, get, into, get involved in the scene on every float. Just like, okay, this is the Disney one going by, that snow white in the doors. I don't have to be one of the doors so I can enjoy it. <laughs> Just let it go by. And the next one comes and it's got something else going on. That's interesting. Thoughts are like that. They're just passing experiences, but we get entangled in them. We get wrapped up in them. So that's a big training in this practice, is how not to get so sucked into thought. The role of thought is to help us organize our experience. Without thought, we wouldn't have much um, higher capacity to be organized. And all the sensory experience coming in, we need some way of making a bit of a story that helps us get by, so you know how to get from here down to the lunchroom to eat lunch. You need some thought to put it all together. We tend to make incredibly complex uh, sandcastles out of our thought. <clears throat> so the great way, as described earlier, uh, is presence without the compulsion of preferences. So you're willing to be present with whatever arises. And we all have some capacity to do that. And if you look, that's actually the parts of your life that are already the most rewarding. Being with a friend, being with a son or a daughter, being with a family member, uh, being at work where things feel like they're really flowing, uh, being at the beach watching sunsets, being with somebody who's having a difficult day, but you're, you find a great capacity to be there and you really can hold them while they cry. Being present with things as they are, no matter what's arising, tends to be where our life has this incredible joy and tenderness and intimacy to it. And so that's what we're practicing here, how to do that in a greater and greater range. But there are difficulties that come up. There are patterns that come up patterns that come up in the mind that make it uh, challenging to be present. And so, <clears throat> um, again, this tradition is uh, thousands of years old and was described then, happens to be true now, that there are five great challenges to being present. And there are ways that uh, your mind shifts. So the challenges are not so much in the experience. Can I be with a pain in my back or uh, a craving thought of uh, something I prefer for lunch, um, someone I've fallen in love with, a uh, difficult memory. Those are just the content of experience. 
Sometimes you can be with that, sometimes you can't. When you can't be with something, we consider that mind hindered. The presence of the mind is hindered. There's some challenge that's making it difficult to meet your experience just as it is. So there are five hindrances that come up, five themes that come up that make it very challenging to be present with things as they are. So there's a, when you know them, you can see them while they're happening and it gives you a little bit more perspective. Okay, now I'm having one of these challenges come up. So I'll list them and then say some general things about them. The first is when uh, your mental energy is too low or too high. So if it's too low, you get sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, uh, sort of you lack inspiration, there's a listlessness, there's a kind of a falling below the experience. You can't meet it because your mind is too tired, there's not enough energy. Or you can have too much energy. The mind is buzzing and crackling and multitasking and it's restless and it's easily taken up by this, taken up by that, and it won't calm down. It's not satisfied with something as simple as the breath. It's seeking and agitated. We call that restlessness. The first one, sleepiness. First hindrance. The second one is restlessness. The second two sets um, come around our preferences. These are deep habits of the mind. First two are energetic qualities of the mind. Too little, too low. I'm too much. The next two are called aversion and craving. So having experiences that arise and you don't like them and you contract against them, so that disliking, that pushing against unpleasant experiences, like the pain in your back or a difficult memory or an emotion that's coming through, like fear or grief, and the sound of somebody breathing too loud next to you, um, the temperature being a little bit too hot while walking, and so you don't like the, the heat sensations that are coming. That's aversion. The other one is craving. So you have the moment that you have, but it's not pleasant enough. So it might be pleasant or not, but there's, a, there's pleasure somewhere else, and your mind is drifting towards it. Pleasure in the past, pleasure in the future, pleasure in the present, but it's a little too too little, you can't quite access enough, it's too far away, it's not quite enough pleasure. You know, it's funny that we can create as much stress as we do over pleasure. You know, it's not coming fast enough, it wasn't strong enough when it came and it left too soon and it was pleasant, but oh gosh, how disappointing. <laughs> so we can tie a knot out of pleasure. And then the uh, fifth one, the fifth great hindrance is called doubt. Doubt or perplexity or being confused, where um, the mind is very perplexed. It doesn't know what to do, and nothing's quite making sense. It's like, God, when they said feel the breath earlier, that made sense, but now it's not making so much sense. Why would I feel the breath? Wait, wait, what's going on here? And that sort of, ah, I don't know what's going on, is a state that comes. It comes and it goes. All these states, they come and they go. But when they settle in on you, your willingness to be present and your ability to be present are very low. So if you get caught up in doubt, doubt in the practice, doubt in yourself, doubt in these conditions, doubt that this was the right time to do a retreat, doubt in our ability to teach the retreat, if that really settles in on you 
it's difficult to actually just be with one breath at a time, one step at a time, one bite of food at a time, because you're caught up in the, the labyrinth, the confused labyrinth of doubt. So these are, very, these are five very persistent challenges that happen in the mind. They come and they go. So a lot of it is just having faith that when it's difficult to be present, you keep trying, and some of it's just patience to wait for that state either to shift or getting to know that moment of your life just as it is. Hmm, it's difficult to be with the breath. It's difficult to be with one step while walking. I bet there's a hindrance present. What is it? Oh, I'm sleepy. That's what it is. Yeah, I'm really tired. I want to take a nap. But I'm going to stay with the practice. I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to keep sitting and know that this is what it's like to be sleepy. That's a lot of what being with the challenge is. It's just another moment's experience, but it's hard to connect to. So there's a challenge there. But if you know you're sleepy when you're sleepy, if you know you're restless when you're restless, that perspective is really important because it gives you an ability to accept what's happening. If you don't know what's happening, you'll be thrown by it. It'll be difficult to be present and you'll suffer some. But just being able to know, yeah, this is a sleepy state. This is a foggy state. This is an aversive state. No matter what happens, I find many things uncomfortable. I don't like the weight of my shirt touching my back. I don't like the thoughts, and I don't like the buzz of the lights. And I don't like what I had for lunch. I don't like this. I don't like, oh, aversion. Oh, okay. I'm in an aversive mood. Yep. And you got, I mean, when you can, it's even kind of fun. <laughs> it's like, yeah, watch this mind. It hates everything. Mm, it's going through it, checking every list. Don't like that, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that. It's like, yep, that's 100%. Wow, you got to 100%. You got an A plus in hating. <laughs> you actually hated everything. <clears throat> Is it really everything? Okay, it's not everything. Okay, just an A, not an A plus. <clears throat> but you can have fun with it. If you can see what's happening, you're more likely to accept it and roll with it rather than fighting it, which is a big thing about these challenges, knowing they're happening when they're happening. And how you know one of them is happening is that taking one breath is no longer that satisfying, or it's very difficult to do. It's very hard to even feel a breath. So if you're having a hard time even connecting to your breath, and you try, and you try, and you get like half a breath, and you're gone again, and like, okay. So there must be a hindrance here. Which is it? Let's check the energy level. Am I tired? No. Am I restless? It's like, eh, not so much. What is it? oh, I'm trying to figure out how to practice. I'm sitting here. How does this actually work? I don't know. Should I do it this way? Should I? Rather than doing it, you start trying to understand it and it doesn't make much sense and you start thinking about the practice rather than doing it. You can drop that and just do it. Just feel a breath. So do that scan uh, if you're having a hard time connecting to your breath while you're uh, breathing, sitting, to your feet while you're walking, to food while you're tasting it. God, this was easy yesterday, and today I just can't do it. <clears throat> you can wait for one of us to you know, write a note and come talk to one of us, and they're like, oh, you got me sleeping? And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Or you can, uh, you can minister your own wisdom while it's happening, and it's a lot quicker if you can actually do that. 
Sometimes you need to balance out the hindrances when they come. They're so strong that it's not as easy as like, okay, I'm sleepy, I can come to terms with it. So sometimes uh, uh, you see what's happening, you try to accept it, open up to what it is. It's just one more thing happening. But sometimes it's so strong that it undermines itself. You can't be with the sleepiness because there's just too much of it. And so you nobly try to open up and relax in a sleepy state, but the weight of it is so strong that you're just passing out. So in that moment, there's little things you can do to see if you can tilt things back in your favor where you can be present with sleepiness, for example. So if you're sleepy in the hall, stand up. As Mark said, um, you're upping the ante. <laughs> so if the sleepiness takes over and you nod out, um, there's a greater risk. You know, you're falling from a greater height. So standing up will help. It'll bring some energy to the body, energy to the mind. And then you find, yeah, I'm still sleepy, but I actually can be with this much sleepiness before I couldn't when I was sitting. If you're restless, <clears throat> chances are there's too much energy in your system, and it's like shaking up a can of soda. There's like all this pressure inside. And so one thing to do is to actually relax and see if you can, this is, um, open the sense of yourself. Rather than feeling pressure and, con and constricting around it, relax. Sometimes I open my eyes and I let all the energy that's in me feel like it's filling the room. So like, okay, you guys got your eyes closed, you don't know, I'm taking up all the air around you with how restless I am. And I let that energy up into the room, all around me, and I can actually then tolerate it. If I close my eyes, it's too much and I just wanna run out of the room screaming. But if I open my eyes, relax, get a little more space around that energy, it has a way to kind of play itself out. That doesn't make me as desperate. But if I close my eyes and just try to weather it and I constrict it all, I'm increasing the force of the restlessness. So relaxing the mind, relaxing the body, giving a little more space for the energy to play out in is helpful with restlessness. <clears throat> uh, with aversion, Sometimes the mind feels very, very clear when it's being aversive. So it's a strange thing about how that works. So you start to get in this grumpy um, mind and somebody starts to annoy you and then all the thoughts that trail on after that annoyance seem to make a lot of sense. It's like, what are they doing here? I can't believe they're on a retreat. Oh my God, they think they're special? Oh my God, they're a special person. Oh yeah, as if, oh my God. And like all those feel like an action your mind is very clear and it's, um, it's assassinating somebody. It's kind of taking down their character. Or you can obsess about something. You know, you're in this beautiful hall and birds are singing outside, but you get a slightly annoyed by something, slightly annoyed again by the breathing of somebody next to you. Or a thought is, is passing through and it really, um, it really hurts, really pisses you off what somebody said to you in the third grade. <laughs> And so you're willing to sit there and really stew on it and feel it. Like, ah, 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 ah. And all around you is this beautiful room. But you're locked on to this aversion. So this aversion locks onto one specific thing. What you have to know is that style of thinking. You have to see through the aversion while it's happening. You have to see the cruelty of it. You have to see the violence of it. So if your mind takes that turn, even though it feels clear, you have to know that when you're judging yourself or someone else that much. Or when some experience is happening 
that you just cannot tolerate, you have to do a little reflection. Is this really a threatening experience worthy of this much alarm? Or is my mind just in a state, in a grumpy, aversive state? And it can be actually very liberating, very liberating. There's a time that I was stuck in a lot of aversion um, and I was on a long retreat, but I didn't know it. And so I was sitting there feeling like I was doing my mindfulness practice, I could feel my body, but I was just you know, judging people, judging myself and like judging the path and rah, 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 rah. And this neighborhood dog came by and I have a big love of dogs. They're, they've taught me a lot in this life. Um, so all my associations with dogs are pretty positive. This dog came by and had a little bell on its collar and was sniffing all the flowers. <laughs> and so I was very interested in the flowers around the meditation hall. And I said, I was like, whose dog is that? Why is this dog here? Why did they put a bell on it? Why did they pick that bell? <laughs> but it felt like I was actually like, I should write a letter and da da da. And I should, I should find out where this dog came from. And this owner is not a very good owner. Da da da. And I, why should that dog get so interested in flowers anyhow? They don't eat them. <laughs> So I'm sitting there, rah, 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 and I'm so used to it, this aversive mind when it settles in on me, that I'm just sitting there, I'm in pain, I don't even know it. I'm in pain, like, rah, 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 breath, I'm just cruising along, hating the world. And I start hating a dog. I'm like, really? Really? Hmm, I'm hating a dog. That's so unlike me. Hmm. <laughs> Why would I hate a dog? I said, well, well, it's got that bell on. It's like, yeah, but that's kind of cute, dog with a bell. Well, sniffing the flowers. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, it's also kind of cute, dog sniffing the flowers. Well, it should be on a leash. It's like, yeah, but it's kind of fun that it's not on a leash. Like, that's, you know, sad dog on a leash and dog's off a leash. That's, that could be fun. It's like... Um, well, and it's like I kept coming up with all these excuses that I was right in hating the, this dog. I'm like, no, this is a lot of aversion. And then it popped, and I realized, whoa, I'm actually in this storm of aversion, and I didn't even know it. But once I saw it, and I saw how much my mind was willing to pick on things and be aversive, then I was like, okay, this is a suffering state, because I'm hating dogs already, and that's not so good. So I relaxed, and I said, wow, I'm hating a lot of people. And suddenly I saw it happening. And I got curious about it, because I could see it. I could see it happening. I didn't see it happening. It was cruising along, digging in the grooves about you know, why the world doesn't work. But I could see it, and then I could actually be liberated from it. One, just by not letting it land so hard and form into hard opinions. But two, I could breathe a little bit, relax, notice that I was upset, notice that there's some frustration happening, and then relax around it, and then dissipate it, as opposed to fueling it. The same is true with craving. <clears throat> so you're sitting here, and breath in, breath out, very, very fulfilling. And then things shift a little bit, and you start getting some fantasies coming in, and you start craving this or craving that. You know, the people you fall in love with, or vacation fantasies that you're having, or the food you hope they're gonna serve for lunch, or how great things were in the past, or whatever. And then it's like, yeah, I don't really wanna be with the breath. You know, the breath is kinda of neutral, but these fantasies, wow, they're really fun. I'm going to do mindfulness of fantasy. Mmm, Hawaii. And I see myself on the beach. Wow, what a tan I have. And boy, I've got muscles now. That's cool. And I can surf. I didn't know I can surf. That's so cool. Oh my God, my life in this fantasy is so beautiful. I don't really want to be with a breath. I don't want to be in this body. I don't want to take another mindful step. I want to be like, 
cruise into these fantasies. <clears throat> it's like, really? So, how much nutrition really comes from the fantasy? Fantasies are fine. Making plans, you know, that can be kind of fun to do, but if you're really lost in it, well, you'll notice that you'll spend a lot of energy in the fantasy. At some point it plays out because it's, you, you're not actually there, right? So at some point you wake up with the fact you're not actually there, it's not actually that fulfilling. And then you come back and you spend all this time kind of like dissing the breath and dissing the body and dissing the present. And you just kind of renegotiate that whole relationship. Okay, I'm sorry, I said you weren't that important. <laughs> okay, breath, yeah, I'm gonna fall back in love with you. Sorry, I didn't return your calls. <laughs> I was off in this fantasy. <clears throat> and you come back, it's like, okay. It actually would, would have been more fruitful to stay in connection with the present than trailing off one more fantasy and playing that out and have the bubble pop and then having to come back and refine the present. How many times do you want to do that? You know, a lot. So, <laughs> but over time, you get to feel the exhaustion of it. And then the fantasy comes like, yeah, nice fantasy. And nice body. So let's stay in the body. Fantasy's happening, and then there the bubble pops, thoughts gone, and I never left the body. That's, you know, that's job well done, to not be so seduced by craving when it comes. You also feel sometimes the fantasies are not that pleasant, like you're seeking. You're, you're not satisfied. One moment it's really nice to take a step, eat a raisin, feel the breath. Next moment it's just like, no, but it just won't do it. There's something else I gotta have. Where is it? What would do it for me? And you're seeking, grasping, you're thirsty for something, and you're looking elsewhere. But if you could pop the craving that you're in, know that you're having it, and settle back out of it, then you're not driven by that, compulsively driven by craving. And all that you'd have to do to fulfill that fantasy, you can still do that, but not be compulsive about it. And you might find that the effort put in and then the promise of the fantasy, you can also question, will it really be that fulfilling when you get there? You know, here we fantasize about being on vacation. You get on vacation, we're just as bored and restless there, and so we fantasize about being in the bliss of meditation retreats. <laughs> when you get here, it's like, no, 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 I had it at that fantasy, I mean, at that, uh, at that vacation. You get the vacation, like, no, no, I was right there at the retreat. You know, <clears throat> it's this sort of false promise that somewhere else is actually really going to do it for you in some deeply satisfying way. If it, if it won't do it for you, if you can't be with you here now, you can't be with you there then, right? So. <clears throat> and then doubt and perplexity when that comes. You just need sort of a, you just need faith. Faith and patience. You know, our minds are so brilliant that they can build these complex models of how the world works. And then we can get lost in that. As Mark said, there's really no reason to have that much doubt. It's, it's not that complicated. The breath comes in and you feel your torso expand. And the breath goes out and you feel all that relaxation. You take one step, there's a lot of sensory information there and you just feel it. <clears throat> so it's not that complicated. But when our minds get twisted in knots and we're trying to understand it, and put it all together, and then we get lost in the map we've painted, it's best just to drop that. Say, yeah, my mind's in a kind of a confused state right now, really perplexed, you know, come back later <laughs> for clarity. <clears throat> but I can still feel my body. I'm just gonna have faith that this goes somewhere. And then you see that the doubt passes. It just passes. 
And then the mind gets simple again. It's like, I don't know what that was about, but I just got really confused, waited it out, and then things settled again and they were clear again. So it takes faith to ride out doubt. Faith and an ability to stay connected even when it's confusing, even when it's not so clear why you're doing it. Just be steady, just be steady. Do feel as many breaths as you can. Feel as many steps as you can. And that whole complication arises, twists, opens and dissipates, and you never had to actually figure it out. And then when you're back in and feeling the breath, back in and feeling the body, um, while it's walking or tasting the food while you're eating, then it makes sense again. This is so simple. This is really satisfying. I don't have to have this huge complicated map of why this works. It's so self-evident. So that's what happens with when doubt comes. And when doubt, when we have these challenges, sometimes we get confused. Wait, I don't know if I'm supposed to be with this. Wait, I don't know if this is working out right. <clears throat> Trust me, it is working out right. And if you can stay with the breath, if you can stay with your feet while walking, if you can taste your food while eating, if you're still here and still breathing, it's working. And just have sometimes really um, dumb faith that I'm just going to stay with it. And you'll see there are times it makes sense, times it doesn't make sense, and it makes sense again. But it didn't change. It's just sometimes your mind is clear, and sometimes it's tied in knots, and those knots dissipate, and it gets clear again. So you don't have to do anything different. Just be steady as doubt comes and goes. There's room for questioning. There's room for learning. Um, so it's not about that. But you know you're in doubt when, it's, when you, it's difficult to be present with something as simple as breathing because your mind is so caught up in trying to understand it and it's not making sense. So know, know each of these hindrances when they happen. If you know it's happening while it's happening, that's already a lot of information. And then if you can relax into them while they're happening, that's also fantastic. And you see, they, they come and they go. And the great thing about these hindrances and these challenges <clears throat> is that every time your mind is ready to deepen its relationship to itself, every time you're about to go deeper into the body, deeper into your own heart, when you're able to really see how your mind works, how all the thoughts are working, every time you're about to go to a whole other level of self-awareness, self-intimacy, you pass through a layer of these hindrances. And so that's one of the great things about doing long practice like this in a group of people is that you guys are passing through these hindrances while they come because of the schedule and the dedication of the whole community. That's why it's hard to do it by yourself because when you have a hindrance, it's only you holding you through it. But you can actually um, let the momentum of the retreat carry you through these, these hindrances when they come up. And then you'll feel the opening afterwards. And so that's one of the great things when these hindrances come, they're usually a bit of an omen that when if you can actually stay through the hindrance, the mind settles a little bit more, opens a little bit more, and you can feel a little more, a bit more than you did before. So it's not quite that linear, like that's a guaranteed hindrance, opening, hindrance, opening. But um, the, they tend to be, before the openings come, some of the challenges. And if you have the faith and steadiness to stay with it, even when it's challenging, 
usually what happens afterwards is a, a greater opening, a relaxation. So just to end, I'd like to um, just read this first little bit again, describing the great way. <clears throat> the great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Separate by the smallest amount, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When fundamental nature, when the fundamental nature of things is not recognized, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect as vast space is perfect, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our grasping and rejecting that we do not know the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of the outer things, nor in the ideas or feelings of emptiness. Be serene and at one with things, and erroneous views will disappear by themselves. When you try to stop activity to be quiet, your very efforts fill you with activity as long as you remain attached to one extreme or another, you will never know oneness. Those who do not live in the single way cannot be free in either activity or quiet. So soften your preferences and your attachment to them. Expand your capacity to be intimate with yourself just as you are, uncontrived open to the full range of body sensations, thoughts and emotions. Ground yourself in a breath at a time, in a step at a time. Let's sit for a moment and let that settle in. Keep it simple.
Now is a period for walking <clears throat> to enjoy the beautiful night air. And we'll come back for one more sitting after that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.